Welcome to Predicting People, hosted by Professor Nick Chater and Dr. Henry Stott, the co-founders of DeckTech. Predicting People explores current events and their commercial implications through the lens of behavioral science. Hello, everyone. Welcome to this episode of Predicting People. Today, Henry Stott and I are going to be talking about the mysteries of inflation that affect us all, but it also in particular affects the question of pricing. And pricing teams and companies of all shapes and sizes will be wondering, how do you deal with the fact that prices are rising? How do you adjust your prices in a way that is going to be most acceptable to your customers? But of course, inflation itself just a fascinating and somewhat puzzling thing as we'll be exploring today. So we're looking at how we perceive inflation and how we navigate it. A live issue of the morning, inflation, according to the BBC website, on the 17th of January is 9%. A wage inflation, interestingly, 6.4% and perhaps creeping upwards. Inflation is very much an issue of great importance to us all at the moment. Henry, you're going to start us off with a little bit of discussion of the fact that inflation is quite a puzzling thing. You'd think economists had inflation sorted out, but actually that's not quite right, is it? Even if you're an economist, inflation is a bit of a mystery. No, indeed. As we launch into that, against the backdrop of the media storm that currently surrounds inflation, I'm going to start off with a quick quote on inflation. I'm curious, Nick, to see if you know who it was. I'll do my best. Quote goes, inflation is violent as a mugger, as frightening as an armed robber, and as deadly as a hitman. I have no clue at all. Danny Dyer, maybe? (laughs) Any idea? No, not a clue. So that was Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan? Back in the, well, 70s, 80s, when uh, inflation was last at the current levels. But of course, inflation has quite a longer history than that, going back to at least the uh, 1700s, when um, economists started to try and measure how prices were moving. The original work on this was done by a man called Joseph Lowe. He was a Scotsman, managed to garner himself the title, the father of index numbers. And he sort of said, look, I mean, it's 1700, so they're worried about how Madeira beef and things and other things they used to eat in the 1700s have gone up in price over time. Joseph Lowe was saying that in order to create an index, you had to have some kind of expenditure basket. And this rumbled on for a while because he said, okay, I'm going to give beef this much weight and Madeira this much weight. It then went on to other economists, people like Etienne Las Pegas, who said, if you want to understand how you should weight this basket, you should look at the original basket. So in other words, if I buy the following things on Monday, then the measure of inflation is how much it's going to cost me to buy those things in a year's time. And then you have people like Hernan Pash, who then came and said, no, 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 that's not right. It should be the things that you buy next year that you weight it by. Because the prices are all moving differently, the things that you buy next year are different to the things that you buy this year and will differentially be skewed towards the things that have not gone up in value as much. Because there are these debates about how you should weight the different prices, you actually get material differences between these different inflation measures. So it is not at all clear cut. That's interesting, isn't it? Think about something like fruit prices, say. So imagine I'm in the summer, I eat tons of soft fruit. Maybe it's most of my diet is soft fruit. But then I look at the same soft fruit in the winter and I think, my goodness, it's unbelievably expensive. This must be tremendous inflation because look at these blueberries. They've gone up by a factor of three. So if I was a big soft fruit eater, then when I go from summer to winter, it looks like a huge amount of inflation has occurred. But on the other hand, supposing when I don't eat soft fruit, I eat um, root vegetables. When you say you might 
take the other approach and say, well, let's look at the basket of root vegetables you're now stuck with in the middle of winter. How expensive were they in the summer? Yeah, maybe not that much different, really, because all the inflation was in the fruit, but I'm not eating the fruit anymore. So if you're looking backwards, your inflation rate is going to be much lower than if you're looking forwards. And that's kind of weird, isn't it? And the more you think about it, the harder it gets. I mean, fundamentally, what you're trying to do, I guess, is say, with $100, I can buy this much utility or this much well-being. And then a year later, how many dollars do I need to accumulate that much well-being? And I will determine inflation to be that increment more dollars that I require to get that same level of well-being, regardless of whatever basket it was. But of course, this is all predicated on the idea that there is, in fact, some kind of hardwired relationship between spending money and well-being that's stable enough to even measure. So at some level, I think if you're you and I, you would actually just say, this can't be done. Human beings don't carry around these hardwired utilities. But just going on to the ONS, they obviously do a heroic job of tracking 700 items. They send out people to collect prices. Apparently, there's 100,000 prices go into each calculation across hundreds of different locations. In 2022, what do you think was the most complained about example of shrinkflation? So this is the phenomena whereby for the same price, you can buy less of a thing than it used to be. And therefore, the ONS have to adjust the price. I don't know, but I'm going to have to stab that it's something like the Yorkie bar. Oh, you're so close. It's actually Cadbury's Dairy Milk, which uh, went from 200 grams to... See, these are the things people get upset about, obviously. 200 grams to 180 grams, but you still have to pay two quid for it. You've got all these kinds of things in your 700 items and quality adjustments too. So I mean, a point that you've made as we prepared for this, how do you compare spending money on the cinema versus spending money on Netflix? It's an entertainment good, but it's, it's sort of dramatically different in terms of the actual user experience. And this is all before they try to do any kind of blending of the prices into an actual inflation number, which then comes in the form of their own market research on spend data, surveys, information on what people are actually spending money on. So they weight all these 700 goods according to some other spectacular process, which is very much in the Joseph Lowe school of not what you bought at the beginning or what you bought at the end, but some kind of set of things that I'll move over time to reflect the economy, but in that sense, sort of external to the process. And of course, that basket is going to matter a lot, isn't it? Yes. Well, some people think your heating should be in there. Probably it is. Do we have mortgages in there? Rents? Then depending on what you put in the basket, you get completely different answers. And you're going to also have all those tricky things with gigantic technological change, aren't you? So you're paying the same amount for your PCs you perhaps were 20 years ago, but it's a very different PC. Yeah. Since we've just been through the pandemic, of course, this issue has been a really live one because we, in a very, very different way, we were spending much less on transport. We were switching from the cinema to Netflix. We're eating very differently. Once your actual basket of goods is jumping around, then it's really not clear what even the right answer is. It's not that the ONS need to be paying closer attention. It's even if they paid really close attention and they knew absolutely everything about what everyone spent, it's still not very clear what the actual inflation rate would even be. Having beaten up on the Office of National Statistics, not that I've got anything against them. I think they have an impossible task. When you start fiddling around with weights and so forth, what you find is that divergence in these numbers, but that actually that divergence is measured in percents. We're saying this is hard to measure accurately, but they can have a go. In an environment where inflation is 2-3%, they may be quite a long way off. At which point, things like the triple lock that the government has on pensions and so forth becomes materially adrift. I mean, I think everyone agrees that inflation is currently very high. Is it 11? Is it 9? That sort of is the debate. But fundamentally, 
it is no longer in the 2% range that it's been for about 10 years. Another feature of this is that we've decided to talk about 12 months as opposed to one month. It has been the case that over the course of the middle of 2022, the monthly inflation rate has climbed up to 2%, and that's generated a 10% bump in aggregate. But actually, as we sit here today in January 23, the monthly inflation rate has now pretty much come back to normal. You'll be looking at much more normal rates of monthly inflation from here on out. But of course, it will take one year for the summer peak of 22 to pass through the system. Even though the month-to-month inflation is now actually down to nearly nothing, the annual rate of inflation that gets reported is going to remain very high all the way until this time next year. So at some level, government policy of halving inflation by the summer is already baked in, unless something catastrophic happens and the monthly inflation rate that is already in place changes. It's the most attractive possible political promise, isn't it? Something that's just going to happen completely automatically with no action being taken. Yeah, without any intervention. That's right. No doubt. Therefore, a very good one to latch onto. And so, yeah, your, your point's a very interesting one, isn't it? That time period we tend to focus on, which is annual, it really matters, doesn't it? So if you had zero inflation and then a sudden 10% spike, and it's not that far from what's happened, then back to zero again, month by month, then in the world of annual inflation, you spend a whole year saying, God, inflation, 10%. If you're in monthly inflation world, you think, my God, inflation went completely crazy in this particular month, and then zero again. And that's just a very different psychology, isn't it? So I think that's a good moment to then pivot across to talking about the psychology of it. In terms of actually measuring prices and going out and collecting this data, and then deciding over what time period you want to report and all the rest of it, we all have the sense of there is inflation. Why do we think that? What's the cognitive science behind perceiving inflation? And also, I suppose there's also this interesting question of what does it mean? Why do we behave differently when we think there's inflation afoot? I'm going to start with a, a nice quote you found, uh, Henry, which is um, Yogi Berra, who's a famous uh, source of amusing quotes, uh, who's a baseball catcher and I think manager, um, very successful one, but probably a bigger figure in the world at large because of his, these wonderful quotes. Uh, a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore, uh, which is a classic Berra-ism, because, of course, there's sort of something intuitively deeply right about that. You think, yeah, but it's right. I mean, it's like 10 pounds isn't worth 5 pounds or whatever. But, of course, it's sort of bonkers as well, because you know, money's worth whatever it is at the moment. Um, I, I know a couple of Berra quotes, which I just can't resist, is, if you come to a fork in the road, take it. I think it's particularly nice. And also, <laughs> also very famous, uh, well, no one goes there nowadays. It's too crowded. These do have a kind of deep wisdom buried in lunacy. But the sense that we have that money's not worth what it used to be, I think that clearly comes to us by thinking about what we used to be able to buy with the same money. So we're, we're holding on to some prices. We're having the sense that some things we can remember. So, for example, I was watching a, a movie uh, recently set in the 90s, and somebody bought a book for 30 pence. And I thought, my goodness, maybe it was the 80s. I remember that. I remember buying a book for 30 pence. And ah, that just tells you how much inflation we've had. But, of course, I don't have any real sense of, in absolute terms, what money's worth then or now, but I do have certain specific price points. And I think that's a generally interesting thing, that we, we don't remember much about the overall value of money, and we don't remember much about individual prices, but we have certain key comparators that we do hang on to. So some, some people, very focused on, say, petrol, will have a sense of how much a, a litre of petrol used to cost and what it costs now. And Yeah, you frequently purchase goods. You know what a Diet Coke is. So, yeah, so on this question of salient prices, so the things we've been talking about, and there's also similar things like my shopping bill going up. I may have no idea what anything costs, but I do know that you know, now I'm finding that my shopping bill is over £100 and it used to be under £100. And, of course, another thing is just running out of money. So there are various clues that are 
jumping at me. And they're all saying the same thing, of course. They're at a time of high inflation. They're getting away from the fact that it's only going one way. And to some extent, also, that's true with energy bills. I mean, energy bills are usually a really tricky thing to make any sense of because, you know, the weather and time of year and things like this, they, they, they push our energy bills all over the place anyway. And, and also, lots of us are on schemes where the energy bill of a month, we get for this month, is, is some kind of mixture of possible average over the whole year. But of course, recently, the energy shock has been so great that energy bills are suddenly making us really feel a massive hit and therefore a sign of inflation. Talking about salient prices, energy is a key one there because um, not only has it changed dramatically, tripling rather than simply a 10% inflation number, but also we are being constantly fed in the press a distilled form of that number because of the tariff capping scheme an average household's cost is being reported so at some level they're doing a very bad job of what the ons is out there doing because you're latching on to changes in the price of whatever that good would be and then using that as your key or alternatively you're using a highly volatile weekly basket as an indicator of what inflation is which again is going to be in effect a bad version of a more thoughtful basket that someone like the ONS may use. That's right, isn't it? So yes, the public debate has been just rather arbitrary, poor measures of inflation. The other extreme, of course, my our personal experience will depend on the things we personally care about, how much petrol we, we buy, what kind of groceries we care about, what our personal basket going to matter. And there's an interesting paper by um, Dacan Turbon, Mondier, Weber in 2021, looking at people's grocery experiences actually affect their perception of inflation. The neat trick there is they have quite detailed data on what people buy, who in a household is buying it. And they also ask those people what they think the inflation rate is. And it turns out that there are gender differences. So essentially, it is the case that on the whole, women care more about regular grocery shopping and men care about more about petrol. I think that's the, the kind of story. But actually, that's not really where the action is. The real action is who buys what? The truth is that the person in the household who buys the groceries, they notice the groceries going up. And the person who buys the petrol will notice the petrol going up. To the extent there are gender differences, there are differences in what you're actually buying. But of course, that is telling us, that's reminding us that really what matters is your own personal level of inflation. Who cares what this aggregate mysterious inflation across the whole nation is, even if it's completely well-defined? I mean, for each individual person, what matters to them? What's happening to the the cost of the stuff they're actually buying? The other thing is, does it matter? What what happens to an economy when inflation strikes? That's the question for economists, but for psychologists, it's also kind of interesting. Because people behave psychologically in slightly odd ways. So in a world where prices are rising quickly, you might think, well, as long as everything's predictable, it doesn't really matter what prices are. If they all went up uh, in a predictable way, then life would just go on as normal. If we decided we're going to increase every price in in the UK, we're going to inflate the entire currency by a factor of 10. We're just going to write little zeros on the the end of everybody's bank account. Basically, Italy in the uh, the 70s is Weimar-esque. Yeah, so you, somebody, if you do that, it doesn't really make it change anything apart from making it sort of easier to write down the sums of money. But of course, when you actually live in a regime of high inflation, it matters a lot. People's behaviour changes a lot. Now, part of that, of course, is a friction of something going up quickly, something going down. It's just you know, chaos. But there are other things going on. And one of them, much talked about in, in psychology, it's a famous paper by Shafir, Diamond and Tversky on this, but it goes back much earlier, the economist Irving Fisher, is this phenomenon called money illusion. So the money illusion is the idea that, to some extent, we value money by the sheer quantity of money. So we sort of hop around. So to some, sometimes we're thinking a nickel ain't worth a dime anymore. We're thinking your money's value is dependent on what you can actually buy with it. And that's not as much as it used to be. Uh, half the time, we're just thinking, well, money's money, isn't it? Yeah. And if I've got a £1,000, that's worth a £1,000. And that's the end of it. 
And this tendency to some of the time be focusing on just the nominal value of the money, that really matters. So, for example, it has curious implication that if inflation goes up, salary goes up a bit less than than, than the prices. I don't feel too bad. I think, well, my salary did go up, didn't it? I should think, well, this is, you know, this is terrible. my, My ability to buy stuff is going down. But I don't feel too bad because my salary is still going up. On the other hand, if you had static prices and my salary went down, I think this is awful because it seems awful in in terms of actual amounts of money. And in a future podcast, we might talk about wages a bit more. This is basically a problem people have in terms of understanding the discontinuity between real and nominal value of money. In principle, they should be entirely sensitive to what their money can really buy. At some level, there are these framing effects whereby the um, nominal amount bleeds into that decision in some way that it, it shouldn't do. Yeah, so I think this, is, this causes real trouble in, in deflation, which are obviously very far from at the moment in the UK. But when you have deflation, the prices are going down, value of money is going up. Um, so interest rates should be negative. So that the bank should take money away from you, uh, but not too much, just by putting it in their accounts. And that's it feels terrible. Nobody likes the idea of that. There's a sense of total outrage. They're just taking my money. I gave them a thousand. They're only giving me 999 back. What's going on? You know, in a world of you know, severe deflation, that could be great. It should be a really good deal. So there's something really just, yeah, but very, very weird about trying to make sense of the real value of money in a world where the thing that's obvious to us is the actual sheer nominal quantity of money. But another thing is that often contracts are made in, in money terms. So you decide you're going to buy something, you're going to buy it in a month or a year. You've set your contract and you set the amount of money. So then once you have inflation, then you as an individual are thinking, well, I've already committed to buy that thing or I've got this you know, sofa on high purchase or something. So inflation is really quite psychologically baffling for us and, and damaging. It really sort of scrambles our choices. It makes us do the wrong things. And so it's generally, you know, we don't like it very much. Yeah. So Henry... How do businesses handle this? Because in, in reality, most businesses in, in high inflation times, they're going to have to put their prices up. There's just no getting away from it. But how can they try to manage that in a way that is as least damaging as possible? We've done a reasonable amount of work on this, and there is vast literature on the subject as well. People have trouble aggregating prices, and they specifically over-attend to specific prices. But then there's the question of, I mean, how are they perceiving those prices in and of their own right? The sort of house view from us is that most goods have what you might describe as a reference price, the price at which you would think that was about right, begging the question then where do reference prices come from? But insofar as you as a company are offering people a price that's on the wrong side of that reference price, then that would be particularly painful because you'll have sort of phenomena of loss aversion whereby people will be much more upset about where you're more expensive than the reference price than the other way around. There tends to be diminishing sensitivity. The further you are away from the reference price, the less people are capable of really processing that difference. And so I think the view from our side is that the prices that people perceive of a specific item has got a whole bunch of actual perceptual science to it, above and beyond simply the way that people are differentially attending to a given price or weighting it and so forth in the aggregation. It's not as though they're doing some kind of even-handed arithmetic where you simply say, well, it's gone up 10%, therefore that's 10%. Uh, What we're saying here is, well, actually their expectation on the price may have changed. So then their expectation, perception of the price that they see is then different. That's not a linear process. It kinks around the reference price and it has this diminishing sensitivity feature. There's a sort of whole psychology to that that then leads to a whole set of things that one would do in terms of 
how you would implement price changes if you were a retailer. Quite a lot of that revolves around where the reference prices themselves come from, above and beyond the way that you then perceive prices relative to that reference price. So reference prices have a variety of different sources, as you might imagine. I mean, you know, what the price used to be, that's a relevant reference price and therefore plays to the point of inflation. But reference prices can also come from competitor prices, what the cost of substitutable goods are. You know, there's particularly expensive one of my favorite subjects, bacon, if it's particularly expensive bacon, and you put up the price of the cheaper bacon, that will not be as bad because it's already being framed by this very expensive bacon, particularly if someone else's bacon has gone up already in price. There's that famous paper where you're asked how much would you pay for a beer in this shack on the beach versus an expensive hotel, and you would expect to pay more in the expensive hotel because the context is of that nature. But I mean, even within a situation you might expect to pay more just because the labeling's changed and the nice thing about that henry is of course in that famous experiment the pretty hypothetical they didn't actually get people on beaches uh, actually buying beers but you're asked how much would you be willing to pay aren't you if my friend's going to go and get me a beer are they going to wander up to the shack or wander up to the hotel you know you, you'll actually say oh yeah i'll pay five quid if it's if, if you're going to have to go to a hotel I'll, I'll pay five quid for the beer but i'm not paying more than that if it's a shack you'll like pay two but obviously that's mad because all you ever get is the person comes back with a beer you drink it or you don't drink it, so whether you, you have to pay, it should be just depends on how much you want some beer. It shouldn't really matter whether they're going to a shack or not. But as soon as you think they're going to a hotel, you think, oh, well, that's going to be a lot, isn't it? And then you're judging that price as a fair price. It's probably okay, five quid, fair enough. That's what I expect. I'll pay it. It's not actually relating to how much pleasure you're getting from the actual end product. Absolutely. Yet another example of quote-unquote irrationality of people but befuddles economists. But on the other hand, I think when you say it is not at all surprising to anybody else. So these reference prices are coming from a variety of different sources. And if you're a retailer and you're navigating a pulse of inflation through the system, as all retailers currently are, the understanding of the sources of reference prices for your particular product, playing your pricing strategy against those reference prices is um, key to being able to ride out the storm, as it were. If you go to sort of what some of the implications of that would be, would be a good idea to let your competitors lead when it comes to price increases. Other people had gone before you, and so the reference price at that point was already on the move, and so you could follow on. So let the competitor lead. As you put prices up, you can change, talking about substitutable goods, you can foreground the cheap stuff. I mean, one of the interesting features of reference prices is there is an absolute effect. Something that's 50p is cheap. You know, No matter what the, what the, what the reference price was, no matter, no matter, no matter what it was, our most famous example of this was an Ikea toilet brush. I think it was 99p or something staggeringly low. It didn't really matter what inflation had been applied to this toilet brush. It was just always an absolutely low number, which is kind of how pound shops work. And so, you know, if you're putting through price rises as a retailer, it's within your gift to start to point out, as indeed a lot of the current advertising is doing, a lot of the value lines, a lot of the cheaper lines, and helping people understand that, you know, whilst the price is going up, there are still substitutable goods which are cheaper and so you can foreground those and then other effects so we always used to talk a lot about frequency versus magnitude which comes from the diminishing sensitivity point if you're going to be staggeringly cheaper on one good that's a bad idea it's much better to be a little bit cheaper on a lot of goods because of this loss aversion phenomenon i mean if you're going to be staggeringly cheaper the implication is you're going to be slightly more expensive on a few things and that's really really painful you know you want to take out all the sort of sticker shocking items first, bring back 
some of the things that you're really so-called hero prices. I just think that hero prices are actually not that heroic would be our view on that. And yeah, just to think about the work we did with Tesco years ago on where they were looking at taking prices out. And this is, these are happy days when prices were not, not going up rapidly. If you were putting aside a large amount of money to, to reduce prices across the business, the story, as you say, seemed to be pretty clearly from the experimental work we did that we wanted to make sure that you reduce quite a broad range of things rather than just a few heroic, heroic outliers. But you also had to reduce them enough to be noticeable, didn't you? So it was something like between 5 and 10%, possibly depending on the good. So you need to make enough of a change that people think, oh yeah, that's cheap, isn't it? But if you go too far below that, A, people don't, it's diminishing sensitivity kicks in. People don't really notice the full impact, but also you're losing goodwill all over the rest of the basket. And so that kind of spread everything thinly, but not too thinly, seemed to be the answer, didn't it, in that context? Absolutely. I mean, obviously, there are other effects at work beyond simply the perception there, too. To your point, I think when you change the price by enough, you will attract attention or you'll be able to label it as a price cut. And going back to the salience point, there are things you can do to change people's attention as well as then the way they process those prices. But certainly the idea of just noticeable difference has a decent history in perceptual psychology and people's ability to tell the difference between tones or weights or whatever it would be. And the same would be true of prices. You have to be big enough difference to be identifiably different. The summary point is that these are really sort of of a first order significance, aren't they? I mean, for any business who's having to change its prices rapidly, doing it in a sort of intelligent way, which sort of grows with the grain of human psychology, it's not sort of a marginal effect. These are big effects in terms of how the customers will feel and whether they're likely to want to switch to other businesses. It's not something to sort of push to one side and just use intuition. I think it's something where it really, really, really makes a big difference if you do it well or badly. Yes. And one thing we've talked about a bit, this question of fairness. So when prices go up and you can have a sense of outrage and just thinking it's totally unfair. I saw that fairness was playing a role, actually, when we were talking about the, um, the beer example. So I, I'm having to pay loads more money when my friend goes off to the hotel to get a beer. But I sort of think, well, that's what I sort of expect from a hotel. And they've got to pay for that massive hotel and it's a big piece of infrastructure and a bar and a barman. There's a shack. I mean, what cost have they got? I'm happy to pay more. But that raises the general point that fairness really scrambles our intuitions about pricing and a lot and what's a reasonable price. Because often we're not thinking, what pleasure and good am I going to get from this thing? Is it worth the money? I'm thinking, are they treating me badly? Are they being unfair and unreasonable? And if so, I'm not having anything to do with them. I'm punishing them by walking away. This question of fairness is, is generally super significant. The kind of thing that people have looked at, and there's a couple of famous papers on this is a the Bolton Wall up and Alba is a body papers where they looked at polo shirts. Alba. He gets everywhere, that man. Yeah, Alba is always popping up. I mean, the, the Tesco pricing work was inspired by Alba that we did. So they here they got polo shirts for different kinds of polo shirts uh, for sale in different circumstances. And you're looking at uh, the kind of things that are asking people same, same polo shirts available in a different store or the cost of this production has increased or decreased in this or that way. These things matter a lot, but they matter, it seems, because what people are trying to work out is, is this a fair price? So if I find a, the same polo shirt available in a different store, I think, well, I'm not paying for it in this store if I think that that's a sign that they're treating me badly. On the other hand, if I say that there's a beer available in this hotel, but actually down the road, you can get it for half the price in a shack. I think, oh, well, that's fine. Similarly, if I'm buying the same polo shirt in Harrods and somebody says, oh, actually down the, in the market. But the real estate is more expensive, costs of good, but I mean, quality might be different, et cetera. And so therefore, the price differential is going to be somewhat justifiable. What we don't like is someone to be basically gouging us for money. 
Yes, exactly. And I think that's very relevant. The classic problem that, that companies have when they put prices up is that, and this is something that the Alba study found, is that people tend to underestimate the real costs that businesses face. So they'll actually, they will take account of the real estate for Harrods and the hotel, but they'll actually tend to underplay that. Particularly if costs are increasing, they'll tend to understate that. And they'll think that when a price is going up, it means there's some gouging going on. There's profiteering afoot. And people really don't like that and don't will walk away. So trying to explain, to make it clear to customers what's going up and why, prices everywhere else are going up and you know, we're still cheap compared to our competitors or whatever, I mean, that's really important because the natural instinct of any of us is to think, well, you know, I, I could buy this you know, yesterday for £10, now it's at £11. You're making an extra pound, aren't you? That money's going to you, the retailer, and I don't want to be treated like that. The conspiracy theories are running amok is what you're saying, <laughs> that people think they're out to get. This is interesting because this is reminiscent. If I've learned anything in life, it's it's probably from Leslie Crowther and Bruce Forsyth, who obviously had that game show, The Price is Right. Some guy called Hartley at Harvard did a paper recently on um, estimates of pricing where people have to sit there and, and estimate the prices of things. It, it is interesting that in that context, people always underestimate the price. We're talking about 120,000 bids over the um, 40, 50 year run of this show. People are always, always underestimating the value of a good by about 8%. It started out in the 70s and has increased over time to nearly 20% now. Weird that firstly, contestants don't autocorrect in some way that they're slow learners, the contestants on the price is right, it turns out. But also, I think also speaks to perhaps a diminishing of reference prices in the outside world because we're buying things online with one touch buying and all the rest of it. We're not attending to prices perhaps in the way that we used to. And that therefore creates more ambiguity. And the more ambiguity there is, obviously, the lower we're estimating that price and the more we're putting down the real price to gouging behavior by the fat cats who are selling me a polo shirt or whatever it would be. There's lots of latitude there for people to construe uh, misdemeanors. And a famous example that's much talked about in literature is um, snow shovel selling. Yes. And so this is a case where people really feel gouged. And it's not conventional inflation, but I think inflation feels a bit like snow shovel selling. The idea is once it starts snowing, snow shovels suddenly become very much in demand. So what are you going to do about it? You put your prices of snow shovels up. And people really feel outraged about this because they think, well, you bought that snow shovel for a low price. And now, because we all want one, you're just exploiting us. And indeed, a famous um, paper of Kahneman Connection Tversky, where they don't look at snow shovels, they look at some football games, actually. So there's a football game coming up, prices, whatever it is normally, but there's suddenly it's a, there's a big deal about this football game. It's going to decide the, you know, who wins the, some important league or something. So everyone wants a ticket. So what do you do? And they ask people, do you want to set up an auction? Do you just have a, a lottery? Uh, or do you just get people to queue? From an economics point of view, the standard story is, well, of course you have an auction because then the people who really, really want to go will pay more. Of course, there's an issue of wealth here. People who want to go more will pay more. And, and so that distributes the tickets to the people with the highest enthusiasm for the game. So that's, that's the most economically efficient strategy. Lotteries are less good. Queuing is a bit like lotteries with a lot of waiting around. So a lot of pointless waiting around. So that lottery t- t- queues are terrible. But the intuitions we have is completely the opposite. We think, no, queuing's fair enough. Uh, lotteries are, yeah, kind of weird, but okay. And auctions are absolutely awful. Yes. I mean, if you're me facing into Taylor Swift's world tour, that is, again, another example of where they have not particularly gone for the queuing approach, but have just simply said, okay, this is going to be several hundred pounds to uh, stand about half a mile away from Taylor, Wembley Stadium, or wherever you are. And the prices just seem pretty egregious. But you can sort of see that it's rational from an economics perspective. Anyway, very welcoming of the idea of uh, Taylor Swift's office giving us a call to uh, help her avoid 
the brand damage that will almost certainly ensue from these tickets going on price too much, or indeed then being um, scalped and resold at, uh, at vast markups. You do occasionally see in the press these crazy, crazy big prices, much sought after uh, events. The secondary value can go into the thousands. There's tremendous risk if you're a business. Yeah. In terms of inflation, your prices to be going up in a kind of rational, comprehensible, justifiable way, which will be the case for most businesses. I'm sure there will be some price gouging going on, um, but that's really not the normal thing. Most companies are trying to put their prices up as little as they can, and they're driven to do it by the inevitable, inexorable rise in their own costs. The more that story is, is transparent to the customer, the better. It's a difficult story to tell because um, obviously everybody likes conspiracy theory. And of course, there will be some bad actors again out there who will be pushing their prices up if they think they can get away with it. It's a tough sell to be putting prices up and saying, but we're doing it in a fair and, and equitable way because, of course, people are likely to be a little dubious. That's the challenge. So the headline, therefore, would be that people are not particularly processing the prices in a comprehensive and deeply thoughtful way that there are these mechanics to how they perceive prices and the fairness of those prices. And because of those fairly well understood processes, there are ways in which as a retailer, you can navigate your way through foregrounding the lower prices, managing yourself relative to the reference prices, ensuring that you're communicating the quality differences and your own constraints in terms of fairness, and that those sorts of things are the levers you can pull to help you get through a period of high inflation without damaging your footfall and your customer perceptions. So to wrap up then, we've talked about inflation. It's a very puzzling thing. It's very much with us at the moment. It's economically quite hard to even define what it is. Our personal inflation, obviously, is going to be very different from inflation at a national level, whatever that even means. The time period matters. Uh, the basket of good matters. On top of all of that complexity, which is just in, the, as it were, the statistics and the economics, there's the whole psychology of inflation, the way in which we perceive inflation based on specific goods, not all sorts of goods. The just noticeable difference, change of price may tip us over to thinking something's gone up. If that difference is too small, we may not notice it at all. We're going to be paying attention to some things more than others, depending on the kinds of things we buy. All of these things are complex uh, and are going to be crucial in trying to understand how to manage one's prices as a, as a business. And of course, part of that is this question about fairness. Fair price increases are a difficult concept to get across and to be convincing about, but they are really rather crucial. Thank you so much, Henry. Thanks very much to everybody for listening. And we'll see you next time on Predicting People. Thank you for listening. If you found the show interesting, please subscribe to the podcast. To find out more, you can find us at decktech.co.uk and you can follow us on LinkedIn, where we regularly post our latest research.